Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. Hey. And today we're joined by Mr. Nathaniel Frank. Nathaniel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So uh, before we get started, uh, as we get started, uh, you go over exactly uh, what your job is and what what your work and uh, and research is in. Sure. So uh, we're a high volume venom production facility um, that's involved heavily in anti venoms for Africa, South America, and Asia. Nice. And uh, how did you first? Uh, get interested in this and how did you uh, uh, end up doing this kind of work? Well, it's kind of funny. I, I started keeping reptiles at age six. And so 32 years ago, um, and basically started out with turtles and tortoises and then got super interested in, uh, in snakes uh, actually through a family member who was keeping at the time, uh, wild caught ball pythons. And, um, so I kind of worked with those for a long time and kept a lot of different venomous and non-venomous species. And in 2010, 2011, um, I was keeping, uh, the very rare Malaysian blue coral snakes. And, um, there was a researcher at University of Queensland, um, Dr. Brian Fry, that needed venom samples um, from those snakes to finish a study. And um, so I kind of taught myself how to extract venom um, and started supplying to him. Um, and then it kind of grew from there. It, it was one of those, okay, you supplied this, what else can you supply? Um, and so in 2011, I started M-Toxin's Venom Lab uh, to be able to provide venoms to researchers all over the world. Um, and that grew into anti-venom contracts. So, um, so yeah, it was uh, kind of a weird way to get started, but uh, it got my foot in the door. So, uh uh, where did you first like uh, start out with uh, reptiles? Uh, you were you're originally from Germany, correct? No, actually, I'm uh, I'm American, only second generation. Okay, my bad. Just no, on. no worries. I'll just go off of what you're, it's on your Facebook profile, but so uh, what sort of uh, venomous snakes were you keeping at the time you first got into? Uh, your research? Uh, I was keeping Malaysian blue corals, several species of crate, um, Wagleri, uh, so Wagler's temple vipers, uh, stuff like that. And um, there was a real need at the time for those venoms uh, to be studied. So, what, there... um... go ahead, Matt. No, I was gonna say. So when you um, so at your your labs, you currently extract the venom and stuff. What kind of processing do you do before you send it off to the to the different labs for um, for use to making antivenom? So that's a great question. We centrifuge our venoms um, because 
when a snake bites, even if it bites naturally, we don't express the venom glands or anything like that. Um, you get different tissues in that venom. You get epithelial cells, uh, things of that nature. So we spin those out, um, and then we do a process called lyophilization, um, where we freeze dry the venoms and get them shelf stable. So those venoms, once shelf stable, can last over 70 years um, and still have, you know, their potency. <clears throat> and then um, once it's, uh, I don't know how much you know about this process, but once that's then shipped off to the, um, to the facilities, what do they do to then make it into antivenin? Well, what they'll do is um, all the pharmaceutical companies have associated horse or sheep farms. Um, and what they'll do is they'll take that venom, they test it uh, for purity, uh, and then it is uh, microdosed into a host animal. Um, that host animal builds an immunity and on a regular basis gives a blood plasma draw, um, which is actually what antivenom is. I mean, in its most basic form, uh, and the simplest way to explain it, it's freeze-dried horse plasma or sheep plasma, um, just pure IgG antibodies. Um, now, I've heard, so I worked with, um, I interned with the Kentucky Reptile Zoo, and they did a mm -hmm. lot of with Jim Harrison. Jim Harrison, he does a lot of um, extractions over there. They were talking about, I don't remember all the details, but they were kind of talking about the differences between, um, like, Crofab, like American... Um, where you only use like you only use one side of the uh, of the antibody as opposed to using both sides or something something to that effect. Um, but anyways, they were saying there's like a controversy between that like different or different viewpoints, I guess, on that. Do you uh, kind of want to go into that a little bit? Sure. So it it all has to do with the FAB molecule and um, what you want to use. The old antivenoms. Uh, were a whole FAB molecule. And what would happen with that is you would get uh, a lot of serum sickness from that um, because you're basically, you know, shoving a whole horse antibody into your system. Um, what's changed in that is actually they clip the FC chain from the molecule and it creates an FAB2, which is a far safer uh, antivenom that uh, neutralizes in a much, a much better way um, is kind of the, the easiest way to put it. Okay. So um, it negated a lot of problems. It negated a lot of problems with serum sickness and things of that nature. Um, Obviously, with the host animal, there are people that are allergic, um, and so there were problems with administering antivenoms and having uh, anaphylaxis, things of that nature, um, when they would give the serum. So, FAB2 uh, is a much safer, uh, more stable molecule for uh, antivenoms. Um, yeah, that, that would make sense that uh, doing that to the molecule would cause a lot less uh, autoimmune responses because 
it's not it's nowhere near as well foreign recognizes the body than an entire uh animal antibody would be exactly correct um do, do so the malaysian blue coral snakes do they have a high venom yield or are they they have a pretty do you have to like extract a good amount to actually get a, a good amount of venom to ship off no um because they're a long-glanded snake um you get a ridiculous venom yield out of them um i don't have exact numbers um but i mean you're getting i would say if i had to guesstimate probably two to three milliliters a bite and they're not really a large snake to begin with either so it's not correct yeah so uh Malaysian blue coral snakes do they have a particularly toxic venom like do they have a really low ld50 or anything like that their ld50 isn't all that exceptional what's unique about them is they have uh uh sodium channel activators um and so that venom um has a huge potential for epilepsy uh treatment and uh that was that was basically the original paper on that venom was that was the first real snake that you know acted like a scorpion venom um or a cone snail venom it was very very similar well and that, that's a big deal too because if you're getting a high venom yield off of them as opposed to like a cone snail where you know the harpoons are so small you're probably not going to get a you're not getting a whole lot of venom from extracting from that so that's 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 a pretty big deal yeah it absolutely is and it was a revolutionary study because in a lot of ways it showed that the malaysian blue coral has a more effective venom than the inland taipan um so it's it's fascinating in that regard um but uh you know anyone that wants to review that paper um it was called the uh the snake with the scorpion sting um and uh i want to say that was 2014 that that came out um so there's a lot of really fascinating things in that venom that hadn't been found before how far along are they in the um the research phase of it like how far off do you think it would be from like clinical trials um with treating epilepsy i honestly don't know one of the things that that kind of plagues us venom extractors is you know, we'll sell to a lot of these different research firms and, you know, we're basically not involved after they receive that product. So as far as how that's moving along, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but there's a lot of interest internationally for that toxin right now. That's pretty cool. Um, now, is there any... Um to your knowledge is there um any like between so you're saying the malaysian corals they have long venom glands is there any relationship between long venom glands and like um prey that they per prefer or fang type or anything like that like why would something have a larger venom gland than something else 
Well, it's interesting because it's believed that it's, you know, the whole predator prey, uh, you know, setup. Um, those guys primarily consume other snakes. Um, so their venom is extremely neurotoxic, uh, to disable their prey as quickly as possible. Um, most of the Calliophus genus are long glanded, uh, snakes. Um, so they really just have a ridiculous venom yield to, you know, similar to sea snakes. Um, you know, they can't let the fish get away. They've got to drop it as quick as possible. Same thing with the Malaysian blue coral. Interesting. So, so coral snakes over in Asia are kind of similar to uh, the coral snakes we have here in the States, or are there any uh, significant differences between them? Well, the coral snakes we see in the United States, you know, have a PLA1, PLA2 uh, in the Micurus fulvius, for example, the, you know, the, the Florida coral, if you will. Um, but that whole neuro... Uh, transmitter uh portion is what's really unique in the blue corals we don't see it in all the calliophus um it's primarily in the uh calliophus bivergata itself now how often are you um extracting from like i imagine i imagine you know, you have more than, do you have more than one? I'm assuming you have more than one Malaysian blue corals. I know you said they're rare, so I don't know. Um, yeah, we have several. Um, and it's typically a 24 day cycle with okay. them. Is so, that, you know, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, is that pretty standard in the industry? Or does it kind of depend on the, on what kind of snake you're extracting from? It depends on the snake. I mean, there there are certain snakes that uh, are very susceptible to stress. Um, and so extraction schedules are kind of set based on that. You know, what we've learned, like an Eastern Diamondback, you know, can't handle extraction, you know, typically more than once a month. <laughs> Excuse me, but um, you know, a lot of the elapidae, you know, can be done every fourteen days, for example. Um, and so, something that Jim uh, talked about a lot is how far um, venom extraction has come along, especially like Jim, because Jim's been doing it for such a long time and stuff, and how far it's come along, and how it's, um, how it's really improved over the years. Snakes are living longer um, with extract um, with he said at the very beginning snakes that were being extracted from didn't live for very long. Do you want to kind of talk about how the industry's kind of changed over the years and how it's um, a lot more uh, ethically conscious, I guess? <laughs> well, I, 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 yeah, no, I, I think that, uh, you know, as we learn more, you know, we learn more about these animals every day. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that personally, the reason we have longevity is, you know, having natural bites um, with no expression. I, I know Mr. Harrison expresses glands, 
Um, we do not do that. But I think as things have progressed, uh, you know, letting animals naturally bite, give what they give, if anything, um, is a, uh, a big factor in, in longevity on a venom line. And it used to absolutely be terrible. Um, you know, it was nothing to lose 20 to 40% of your animals, um, just from the stress of extraction per annuum, I should say. Wow. Um, so something else, so I was having a conversation with this person. I was kind of talking about venom extraction and stuff. And they asked me this, and I thought this was pretty, uh, a pretty bizarre question for someone to ask. So I thought this would be a good opportunity for someone like you that works with them a lot to kind of um, express this. So I was talking to them, and they asked why when people, people who are just keeping venomous snakes just as pets and stuff, why they don't remove or sew, remove the fangs, snow the, sew the venom glands together, whatever, make it impossible for it to to inject venom why why don't pet keepers do that well <laughs> that's a really good question um you know i i think that uh that that's a tough one to answer because you have the people that are ego-based um who you know just want to keep the animals based for their own ego mm-hmm. um you know it's that's a tough one to answer, you know, because you don't know what's going through people's minds. I mean, venomoiding a snake, I think, is one of the most cruel things you could do to an animal. Um, specifically because, you know, venom isn't there to hurt humans. It's there for prey. And, you know, there's so many digestive enzymes um, in those, you know, snake venom that you're basically robbing the animal of its ability to not only defend itself, but to, you know, properly consume its prey. Mm. Yeah, that's true too. I, I, I didn't even think about that, about the, just the digestive factor that, that comes into um, injecting venom. Well, I mean, so speaking I'm, of gems, I, I, I mean, speaking of gems, one of the things that's interesting, you know, that he said in the venom interviews is, you know, you look at mamba bites, you know, there's no tissue loss. Well, that's because everybody died before they lost the tissue, you know, um, you know, all of them have different enzymes in their venoms that are going to be able to do that. And it's, you know, what hits you first. Yeah. Um, so I would I would guess I would assume then if if you uh, took away the ability for the snake to inject venom you wouldn't be able to feed it you would have to feed it smaller prey because it, it it loses that digestive functions. I mean um, I I think there's some correlation with that you know um, I think there's there's probably a correlation to that. Well, we were talking, so we had one guest on here that said um, that snakes with selenoglyphic fangs typically have longer fangs to eat larger prey so that they can inject deeper into the prey so that it helps digest from the inside out. 
as well as the outside in when it's in their stomach. Uh, so to keep to prevent the meat from rotting within their stomach. Um, so I was thinking, you know, if you take away that venom, then you don't get that digestive function. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, just it's a barbaric procedure, you right. know. Um, I just I I honestly can't fathom it. Um, taking that right away from the animal. Yeah, that's why I thought it was a pretty bizarre question, especially from the person I was talking to. But yeah, I was just like, I didn't think someone would think that would be like <laughs> okay to do, you know? <laughs> right, but. right. We had a, a a copperhead that stayed with us for about almost eight years um, that had been botched in its, in its surgery. Um, and you know, the animal had difficulty, you know, consuming its prey and digesting its prey. And it was uh, a very sad situation to us because if you're going to work with a hot snake, um, let it be a hot snake. You know, um, it's like people that work with, you know, uh, raptors, let's say you know, taking away their talents, taking away their ability to defend themselves. Mm, yeah. Um, so we've actually talked about this with a few other people on here before, but what are your thoughts on uh, keeping hognose? And as far as, you know, uh, as far as them being venomous and stuff, what, what are your thoughts on that and keeping them responsibly? I mean, you know, it's interesting because, you know, one of my mentors in the industry, you know, has always said that, you know, snake bite, you're a living science experiment. And, <laughs> you know, hognose, hognose have an interesting venom and uh, it can cause problems if, you know, they're allowed to, to chew and truly envenomate you. Um I don't think that they necessarily need to be regulated, but I think there's a lot of people that have a laissez-faire attitude towards uh, those as well as Boega. And um, I, I, I just don't understand it. I mean, you know, those snakes adapted, you know, from an evolutionary aspect to uh, be able to disable their prey with their venom how can we not respect that? You know, um, there's been some, you know, one of my favorite books is, uh, venomous bites from non venomous snakes. Um, which is done by, uh, Dr. Dan Keeler. Um, and, uh, those venoms will affect people's bodies in different ways. And, you know, can affect the lymphatic system. It can affect a ton of different things. Um, so they should be treated with respect. Yeah. The, um, you, would, would you say to, uh, you should at least, so when you're, when you're taking care of hot snakes, you should always have like antivenin on hand and stuff. Um, would you say with hog nose, you should at least have like an EpiPen? on hand 
I think I think an EpiPen is wise just because you don't know what it's going to do to you um, right. and how severe the bite is going to be. Um, you know, I think having epinephrine available is a good uh, a good practice, but uh, you know we see how many people are bitten by hognose and never have a reaction, but it's that one person that's bitten uh, that does have a reaction. And then it's a serious, you know, medical situation. For sure. Um, so you mentioned your, uh, you have a uh, Malaysian blue coral snakes and you also mentioned you have uh, like, Wagglers, pit vipers, and some several other stuff. But uh, currently, what are the main species you work with with your venom extraction? It's primarily African species. Um, you know, we deal with a lot of Naya. Um, for Asia, we do a lot with uh, Naya Naya, for example, uh, Deboya russeli, um, things of that nature. And then for South America, we're dealing with a ton of Bothrops. Um, so as Al Koritz, my dear friend puts it, Pogo sticks with venom. <laughs> App description. But... Yeah. Um, so what are the, is, is all of your um, stuff that you're extracting from, is that all going into anti-venom production or is there some of it going into medical research like like your Malaysian blue corals? So a, a lot of our scorpion and tarantula venoms are going to drug discovery uh, right now. Um, I would say, you know, 95% of our business is anti-venom uh, and the remainder, you know, for pharmaceutical research. Do you, out of curiosity, how do you uh, milk a scorpion? So it's actually not that complicated of a process. You basically uh, grab the scorpion uh, with forceps at the base of the tail and uh, use a light electrostimulation um, on the tail towards the, the gland itself, which basically uh, vibrates it. And that enables you to get, you know, one or two drops a piece. I mean, to make a gram of scorpion venom, you're typically doing 15,000 extractions to be able to get a gram. Whereas, you know, an Eastern Diamondback will give a gram and a bite, you know, if it feels like it. Right. So it's a very, very tedious process. <laughs> so when... So with the medical research being done into that, I'm guessing a lot of it is looking into, you know, what the, um, how it can help and then synthesizing that. Cause I imagine it's not practical to constantly be extracting 15,000 scorpions for a gram. <laughs> well, yeah. And, you know, there is some of that going on. Um, but a lot of the pharmaceutical companies still want, you know, what we would call raw venom, um, but purified and lyophilized venom. Um, 
for a lot of those projects. So to synthesize it is the the wise way to go. Um, but that old adage of scorpion venom being the most expensive liquid in the world, it, it's just ridiculous to us. Um, because it just isn't. <laughs> the... Um, do you know what, uh, do you know what they're, the different kind of medical stuff that they're researching with scorpion venom? I've heard that they've looked into like brain cancer and like painkillers for that kind of stuff. It's primarily cancer research. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is we're held by non-disclosures to not discuss it. Um, which I know isn't fun for you guys, but, (laughs) but it's it's a lot of cancer research that I can say. That's cool. Yeah, well that's good. There's a that seems to be a lot of medical venom research is, is cancer cancer and um like either blood thinners or coagulants or anything like that. Exactly. Uh so with your uh Naya, uh, what are some of your, uh, like, uh, do you have, like, any uh, Cape Cobras that you work with, or what type of Nias do you work with predominantly? Oh, we, we work with a ton of Naya Nivea, um, a ton. Um, but uh, Anna Lafera, um, you know, the Forest Cobra Complex, um, and... Uh, we do a lot with monocles um, because we're doing a, a drug uh, through one of our customers uh, as a monovalent uh, antivenom for Kyuthia. Um So it's a lot of red spitters, a lot of uh, Naya Nubia, um, Mozambique, you know, pretty much every Naya there is. <laughs> It feels like some days. Yeah, those uh, forest cobra complexes basically becoming the African version of rat snake uh, phylogeny. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Um, you know, and some studies are in the works uh, to see from an evolutionary standpoint how those venoms differ, but um, it's still in the early stages of of research. Um, most of our anti-venom clients view a forest cobra as a forest cobra. Um, so until some of those papers come out, um, we won't know what the differences are. Mm. So why, and maybe this might be outside of your expertise, but do you know why, like for instance, um, the timber rattles, and I might have this backwards, but the, like the timber rattlesnakes in like Kentucky, are neurotoxic and the cane breaks in Georgia are hemotoxic. And then I've read about Mojave. It's backwards. It's the other way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then like, uh, I think it was the Mojave rattlesnakes in uh, Arizona. There's like a, and this might be backwards too, but there's a population that's like neurotoxic and everything around it though is hemotoxic. Like why, how does populations get uh, switch venom like that? I I think it's all prey driven, you know, that's my personal belief 
Um, but, uh, you know, I don't pretend to be, uh, a venom evolutionary scientist. So, (laughs) so I can't answer it, you know, in a well-educated manner. No, that makes sense. The, I guess if that's the case, I guess venom would have to be pretty plastic as far as like, like if, if different prey is switching, you know, if that makes sense, like switching it from neurotoxin to hematoxic or vice versa based on prey, I guess it'd have to be pretty plastic unless this is over the course of a long period of time. Yeah, I would say it's over a very long period of time. For sure. Makes sense. So is there any, uh, is there any particular uh, species that you uh, enjoy working with more than others? I absolutely love the Ophiophagus snakes. So I am very passionate about crates and corals. Um, but I love dendroaspis, you know, and uh, they've always, in my opinion, been fascinating to work with, you know, all four species. Yeah, so uh, with mambas, is there anything unique about uh, harvesting venom from them? Are they like high yielders or like difficult to milk or anything like that? Well, I think, you know, with mambas, they have a different, a different physiological standpoint of how they actually inject their venom. Um, But to me, it's, I don't like to say intelligence, but it's the intelligence of them. They're very aware of their surroundings. They know uh, when it's time to be extracted from and when it's time to just be fed prey. Um, So, to me, those more attentive snakes that seem smarter um, possess, you know, a different skill set. You have to be, uh, you have to change up your methods uh, on a regular basis um, because they will learn uh, basically what your moves are, if you will, if that makes sense. That's actually really cool. Like it's, <laughs> I like I understand it makes it harder, but that, that's actually really cool. Just I don't know, this that's just cool to me that they they can kind of anticipate what you're going to do based on routine and stuff. Exactly. Especially, especially from snakes, which a lot of you know a lot of people, even herpetologists, kind of see snakes as one of the like, not on like the lesser intelligent reptiles, but um, compared to like a, a lizard or a crocodile or crocodilians. Um, exactly. The, the mambas, um, so does, um, are, do you, well, just in general, this, the snakes that you, um, or I guess the more aware ones, the, like the mambas that are a little bit more aware, do you see any kind of, um, when the, you know, that they're understanding that it's extraction time, do you see any kind of, uh, weariness towards that, like them wanting to get away or anything, or is it they kind of more like laissez-faire? How would you say like they react? Well, that's a great question. I mean, what I've seen, and you know, there's nothing to back this up. It's just from experience. You know, 
a lot of our, like, for example, our black mambas, um, they know if we approach them with a certain tool, um, that it's time to give venom, um, versus, uh, just providing them prey and water and, you know, their, their basic needs. Um, you know, I have mambas that, <clears throat> and that it pains me to say this, but I have mambas that could basically be free handled. Um, but the minute they're on that extraction table, it is, you know, all bets are off and, uh, you know, they're ready to go into attack mode. We call it Mamba party time at M Toxin. <laughs> That's <laughs> when they're, uh, when they're ready to go. <clears throat> but, and that makes sense because, you know, even though they're aware that they're being venom extracted, it's still kind of like, um, uh, predatory evasive like you're still like grabbing them behind the head you know it's still as if they're being eaten like i don't know how to i don't know how right. to word that but right so it makes sense that they're going to be more ready to party <laughs> exactly <laughs> um that's interesting that's super interesting would you do you what of the mambas which one do you think is more intelligent the blacks or well, I, I mean, in my experience, I would say the blacks, um, you know, Dendroaspis angusticeps is a very placid mamba. Um, and uh, they're very easy to work with. The uh, It's almost like they're accepting of what's happening. Um, whereas the black mambas, you know, they know that they're the, the king of it. And... Uh, they like to put up a fight. Um, so when it comes to your, like your scorpions and your tarantulas and stuff, did you um, did you start extracting from from them because you got uh, like contracts, uh, people wanting to to venom from them, or is that something that you were interested in extracting from and, and started from there? No, I, I it's something I've always been extract or been interested in extracting from. Um, you know, uh, and, and we have a demand from our customer base, uh, for those venoms. Um, so it, uh, it's really kind of a, a culmination of things, um, uh, that led to that. Now I've seen, I saw a video of people extracting venom from Sydney funnel web spiders where they kind of have the capillary tube and. Um, get them to kind of have like a, a an aggressive response where they then put the capillary tubes in it, uh, collects the venom from that, from the fangs. Is it pretty similar for tarantulas or is it done a little differently? We use a similar process to our scorpions. Um, so we'll bring the tarantula to the vial and then electrostimulate uh, the glands uh, to release the venom. Um, so it's the scorpion and tarantula processes are pretty much identical. And that electro um, stimulation that doesn't um, increase the stress levels on them. I mean, obviously we're being extracted from, so it's going to increase stress levels regardless, but. We don't, we don't see it, you know, um, 
I mean, some of the tarantulas we have are, you know, still the first tarantulas I started with. Um, it just depends. It's, it's individual, uh, in how they react. You know, we have some, uh, tarantulas of a certain genera and species, um, that are incredibly defensive, but then we have those outliers, uh, that don't want to give a single drop, you know, during the process. So it's, it's unique by animal. Do you have any kind of like breeding projects set up or do you, um, like to continually have animals extracting from, or how do you, how do you go about through that? So there's a lot in, in extracting for uh, antivenom where there's certain genera and species that uh, we need to have locality data on because, you know, th like as a, for instance, there's certain puff adders that are more toxic than others. Um, so we focus on uh, bringing in uh specimens from those regions um but uh otherwise you know where we don't see venom variation uh we work with places like the reptile preservation institute uh cody bartolini uh and those cats over there um you know they produce for example most of our mambas you know that we work with um as well as our terciopelos uh, things of that nature. Okay, so uh, going a bit back to the tarantulas, uh, speaking of arthropods, have you ever done any or do you plan on ever doing any uh, venom collection with, uh, say, something like giant centipedes? We do it. Oh, yeah, we do it now. Um, terrible little animals. <laughs> they are, but, uh, but we do it, uh, we do it now. And, um, there's a lot of interest in pain medication, uh, from those, you know, and some of them that we work with, you know, have claimed lives. Um, wow. so it's still an animal to fully respect. Um, and just like our tarantulas, we anesthetize them uh, to be able to extract their venom just because it's safer for the handler and it's safer for the animal. Um, that's one of our biggest things is, you know, we don't want to injure a tarantula or a centipede extracting its venom. I'm assuming centipedes are pretty much the same way as scorpions and, and tarantulas and extracting them? That's correct. Yeah, it, it's still an electrostimulation um, to the mandibles, if you will. And, um, you know, you get a, some of those uh, uh, centipedes, you get an incredible venom yield from. Um, and uh it's intimidating 
the ones that have claimed lives, is that from allergic reactions or is that just their venom is that uh, potent? Their venom is that potent. And it's typically, you know, the young who are affected by it um, and the elderly. You know, as you can imagine, uh, the immune system isn't as robust as it needs to be to get uh, to get through a bite. Is do you wear um do you, do you guys wear gloves at all when extracting? I know, like for instance, Jim's personal philosophy on that was he didn't want to wear gloves because at some point they're going to fail. And it's not always a hundred percent and he doesn't want to rely become reliant on something that you know might not do the job i i i think that uh you know for us it's all about tactile you know response we need right. to be able to to feel the animal um make sure we're not exerting too much pressure on it uh, those types of things. And so I won't wear any uh, when I'm extracting at all, especially not with, you know, the scorpions, tarantulas, and uh, uh, centipedes uh, because they're such fragile animals. Um, it would be terrible to lose one just losing that tactile response yeah absolutely and and jim's right i mean a glove is never a hundred percent um you know to trust your life to a glove is you know pretty ridiculous in my opinion yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> That's there is uh when I was interning over there, it was funny cuz there was a call cuz some guy over in Ohio um probably someone Nate knows. <laughs> Just kidding. Um but he was for whatever reason messing with his uh cobras. I think it was a king cobra. It was it was a king cobra at 12 in the morning, 12 a.m. and he didn't have any boots or anything on and something happened and of course he got hit on the toe and stuff and he didn't have any he didn't have any anti-venom on him either so there's like a whole thing with that but but yeah I, I can't imagine like for one like it's one you know the gloves is one thing but to not have any shoes on while you're messing around with snakes especially when they're like crawling around like it cage it's cages on the bottom too so it's just i don't know it doesn't make any sense to me <laughs> yeah i mean a lot of people like to uh you know play Russian roulette with their lives. Um, and uh, I'll never understand it. I'll never understand it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yes, what's even weirder is that I'm pretty sure under Ohio law, if he had a Kinko or something like that, he would have to have oh. anti-venom at his place legally. Yeah, I... I don't know Ohio laws. I just remember it was a big thing because they were like trying to contact Jim to get his because he was like the next closest guy. And, and there, there's like a whole, like it was a whole thing, but it was like several hours before he got any kind of antivenom treatment. It was pretty, it was pretty rough. 
But then he posted online afterwards, like on Twitter, or some social media thing about, you know, like joking about it. It's like, what? <laughs> some people are crazy. It, it, you know, Snakebite, having gone through it three times, um, is no laughing matter. I mean, it, it is one of the most terrifying, you know, situations you can go through. And it doesn't matter if you're prepared or not. Um, it's, it's horrific. Um, you know, when I went through my black mamba bite, um, we knew that we had the anti-venom there and, you know, everything would be okay from that standpoint. But, you know, if I had underlying kidney issues or liver issues or, any of those other things that bite could have gone very wrong very quickly. It, it's funny too. Cause a lot of, I don't know if you're the same way with this, but a lot of herpetologists I've met like walking around barefoot. <laughs> I do this. <laughs> I'm the same I way. <laughs> I like walk around barefoot a lot. Um, it, it, even even in the woods and stuff, but yeah, it's. But I know, like Jim was the same way. He likes walking around barefoot, and even Chris even mentioned how he likes walking around barefoot a lot too. Chris Carmichael. So, I, it's it's funny. I don't. It's just I don't know. It's just weird. Yeah, I, I don't understand it personally, <laughs> but uh, but a lot of my you know South Florida friends are perfectly comfortable barefoot you know, uh, working around these animals. I, I mean, I'll do it. I'll walk in the woods barefoot. Um, but I would, and maybe this is sounds just backwards, but like if I was in a lab, like working with venomous reptiles, I wouldn't go barefoot <laughs> or right. if I was in a serpentarium or something, but I don't mind being in the woods barefoot. But yeah. In a serpentarium, that's a whole nother story. I, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, for me personally, uh, even when I got in the woods, I prefer to have shoes on my feet because right away that there's a lot of briar bushes and stuff like that. So going barefoot is pretty much death sentence. So. Well, it's, you know, just go barefoot and let a pygmy tap your toe. And see how that goes. <laughs> yeah, not a good time. You no. know, I've always wanted to, I've always wanted to find a, a wild pygmy, but I've never I've seen dead ones on the road, but I've never never actually found a live wild one, which is that's something on my list I want to find. I am the worst field herper uh, <laughs> on the planet, and I've gotten to see several. As well as Easterns. Um, but yeah, I had full toed shoes on the entire time. My guides did not. Uh, your guides didn't? No, not at all. <laughs> Where was this at? Down in South Florida. I was, I was actually just this afternoon. Walking around the woods barefoot. I had to pull a bunch of thorns from my feet, but um, 
But yeah, I didn't I didn't see any snakes. I did see uh, Evergood's rat snake the other day though, so that was pretty cool. Um, nice. Um, <laughs> that's funny. Um, the uh, uh, wow, what was I gonna say? Um, do you do uh, do you do a lot of field herping at all, or are you mostly you're always in the lab? I'm always in the lab, so it's it's, and I'm not a good field herper. Never have been. Um, I go out twice a year um, to see the timber rattlesnakes in our state uh, emerge from their dens, and then uh, in fall come back to their den. Um, and that's about the extent of what I'll do with it. Um, it's it's a wonderful experience to get to see those animals. Um, but when you work with snakes professionally, you know, you hit a point where, you know, enough is enough, you know, to take care of and, and everything like that. So, yeah, but those are very special moments to me. Um, getting to see them come out and, getting to see them head back to their den. I have a I have a friend like that. I hate going fishing with him because every single time we go fishing, we never catch anything. I can catch stuff constantly, but once we go fishing with him, I can't catch anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I feel your pain. So, <laughs> so um, no, I guess that's my friends. <laughs> So, um, so I guess that means we won't ever go herping together. If you're really bad at herping, <laughs> I learned that lesson from my friend with fishing. Don't go, don't go with people that that can't find anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, um, I've gone out with, uh, you know, my favorite snakes are are eastern corals. And uh, I've gone out, I don't know how many times, and found Easter diamondback, indigos, pygmies, everything, but never the one genus and species I want to see. Um, I've never been fortunate enough to see one in the wild. Yeah, that's always, always the case. You find all the cool stuff when you're looking for the other thing, more or less. And then when yeah, you, absolutely. And then when you're just out looking for cool stuff, then you actually find the thing that you. <laughs> then you find the, the not as cool things. No, no, no. Um, it's your unlucky friend who randomly stumbles across it. Yeah. <laughs> I've been trying to catch red-headed agamas down here, but uh, they're just—they're always in a spot to where, you, like, they're always have the high group. So you can't get anywhere near it. Even if you want to like noose it or something, you can't get anywhere near it because they can see you way before you can even see them. It's just it's they're so annoying <laughs> to catch because there's there's like plenty of them. You just they're always in a just a bad place to catch them. It's really annoying, or it's really windy out, so it's like your fishing line is blowing all over the place if you're trying to noose it and stuff. So. <clears throat> Anyways, do you have any more questions, Nate? Uh, nope. 
righty. Well, this seems like a pretty good spot to end here unless you wanted to add anything else. No, I don't think so. All right. Well, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. All right. See you all later.